Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. This is your hopefully favorite podcast about giant monster cinema from all over the world. Um, today, I am joined by a, a special guest. Um, we have uh, Gregory Kulan, who, um, if anyone is a member of any of the stop motion um, groups on Facebook, or an avid reader of certain magazines like Film Facts or Infinity, you may recognize his name. Um, he's done a lot of writing and research about uh, the career of Mr. Willis O'Brien. He is also involved in an upcoming art exhibit here in my uh, neck of the woods in Ypsilanti, Michigan, at the Eastern Michigan University. Um, it's King Kong at 90, Visualization and the Art of Stop Motion, um, that is going to be running from January 23rd to February 23rd of this year, so it's coming right up. It sounds like they have uh, an incredible exhibit that they're going to have uh, in the university gallery there. I actually graduated from Eastern. Um, I'm not sure if uh, my listeners know that, but uh, yeah, I graduated with a degree in electronic media and film studies from there um, in uh, 2013. Um, but anyway, this exhibit sounds awesome. Um, it's going to have uh, pre-production art, um, original art from uh, Willis O'Brien, Ray Harryhausen, Brian Crabb, Jim Danforth, Charles Knight, um, uh, Bernie Royston, all kinds of, uh, of, of great stuff is going to be on display. Um, you can find out more of that at emugalleries.org. And of course, Greg's going to tell us all about that um, in a little bit. And, um, you know, we'll talk about some of the events they'll have there. Um, there's going to be panel discussions, movie showings, things like that. Um, so uh, we're going to tell you guys all about that. Um, but first, um, I just want to uh, 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 get to know Greg a little bit. So, I mean, Greg, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, uh, what, what drew you. Um, to, I guess, what you do now, you know, writing um, about film um, and, uh, I guess, just, you know, your, your passion for, for this stuff. Okay. Hey, it's, it's great to be here, and thanks for having oh, me. Oh, you know what, Greg? Uh, I didn't tell you this um, before now, but uh, you've been on, like, a short list of people I wanted to have on here for a while now just because, you know, I... I've been reading your articles on uh, Willis O'Brien and stuff. So, you know, when when you uh, had announced this exhibit that you were involved in, I, I mean, it was just like the perfect opportunity to, to get you on here. Okay, well, it's great timing then. So I'm glad people will find out about the exhibit, and uh, hopefully we'll get a lot of attendings there. But, yeah, um, yeah so, um, you know, this has just been my hobby for, for ages. I mean, I... Uh, People, people always ask how long have I cared about stop motion movies and and, and uh, um, films like that, and you know I really can't answer that because my earliest memories I already loved this stuff, and um, you know I grew up in uh, you know a suburb of Cleveland, and um, I had older uh, siblings, so they would always have the uh, you know the movies on on Saturday afternoon and Friday nights and uh, and then special more. Uh, you know, bigger budget uh, features on Sunday, and and somewhere along the line, all my favorite films were kind of stop motion animation. I didn't know what that was until I got you know started reading Famous Monsters of Filmland, but they uh, they were special to me for some reason, and uh, and of course King Kong became the most special of all when I finally saw it in 1976. So 
that that film blew me away and uh, and kept me interested in the in the topic for for years to come. So, um, I had a, a separate career um, working in space systems for for over three decades, but uh, collecting stop motion animation items and uh, and reading about it and finding out everything I could about it was kind of the hobby on the side. So, when I uh, finally retired from my main career, I uh, decided to start hounding the archives and uh, finding things out that, that people hadn't talked about before or, mm-hmm. or you know, finding copies of documents that uh, people didn't know exist. And uh, when you start looking, you find things. And uh, you know, there's a lot of papers at, for example, Brigham Young University, the Marion C. Cooper archives. I mean, tons of documentation regarding the making of, of King Kong and Mighty Joe Young. Um, UCLA has a uh, department which has the RKO production and script files. So you get to, to go there and read several different versions of the Kong script and see how it evolved. And the same for uh, um, not only projects like Son of Kong or Last Days of Pompeii, which um, Willis O'Brien worked, but other projects like uh, Guanji that Willis O'Brien worked but never got made, mm-hmm. at least until years later with, uh, with Ray Harryhausen. So uh, I just started finding um, a lot of material out there that I found nobody had written about before, and I thought it was kind of time to start writing some of it down. Yeah, and especially with stuff that old, I mean, it's it's almost like any time someone does take a deep dive into those things, some there's always something big, you know. Like um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Stephen Cherkis and. Mm-hmm. You know, him going through all the Herbert Dolly stuff, which completely, like, changed that entire narrative. And that that was, like, what, ne- like, nearly 100 years? <laughs> Feel like, I, I think it was, like, 80 or something. But, I mean, the, a lot of that information just isn't preserved well. So it it's not that it doesn't exist. You just, You have to, like, yeah, you have to go through these archives and stuff to find it. Yeah, and, and what you find out going through the archives is a lot of these stories that people have been telling for um, decades and decades are, are not always right. <laughs> right, um, right, yeah, exactly. You know, the, sometimes you get the facts and data out there, and it, it's really interesting to read um, old documentations, like, for example, in the Marion Cooper papers. You can read some some um, correspondence between uh, Marion Cooper, who was at the time making Kong, uh, um, King Kong, and uh, and James Krillman, who was working on the script for Kong as well as the script for Most Dangerous Game at the same time, and you could there's a conversation between the two where you could feel the frustration that Krillman doesn't know how to tie all this stuff together with a native civilization and dinosaurs and and a giant ape creature, and he's he's kind of floundering, and it's it's just wonderful to see that um, come out and play. And, and sometimes you find things that, like Steven Zirkus did, um, changes the story quite a bit. Yeah. Um, you had, uh, you know, um, mentioned a while back. So, I mean, the, your articles on, you know, um, Guanji, Black Scorpion, Giant Behemoth, movies like that, um, that typically never, like, kind of like what you said, never really got a lot of attention in writing or, you know, the history of, of those projects. Um, I know at some point, uh, and I, I think you probably don't even remember this, this is the first time I interacted with you on one of those um, Facebook groups, 
you had mentioned that you were, you know, the the project you really wanted to do was like a book about Willis O'Brien. Is that something that you're still actively, um, uh, you know, striving to do? Is that something? Is there any kind of uh, update on 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 where you are with that? So actually, if you could see my computer screen now, you could uh, you could see that I'm going through a uh, hopefully a near final iteration of the manuscript. It's coming in at about 220,000 words, and um, I'm pretty close to finalizing a deal with the publisher. So, oh, um, that's great. So um, it's announcements soon. Awesome, awesome. Um, uh, I want to kind of get into um, you know O'Brien and his uh, very kind of all over the place career, but but um, you know you you'd mentioned several times already. You know, for you, like the real, the thing that's truly special about this stuff is, um, you know, the stop motion technique, and um, you know, I, I'm assuming the aesthetic that it has, and uh, I, that's how I feel about this stuff too. And also, you know, I'm also a lover of the Japanese stuff, so you know, the suits, the miniatures, all that stuff that is, um, you know, those tangible kind of handmade special effects. So. Um, I, I have to ask you, um, do you have any thoughts on, I guess, the, uh, I don't know if you want to say the newer generation of Kong films that are, um, you know, the CG stuff, uh, you know, the Jackson movie or, you know, the Skull <laughs> Island, Godzilla versus Kong. Are those movies that you have any kind of feeling about or are, do they just kind of like exist in like this, <laughs> the kind of like black hole of you know, loud summer movies that <laughs> we get every year. Yeah, I mean, it, it might be more the latter for me in some ways. It, it's complex. I'll, I, I kind of need to split that question up a bit. Go for I it, can. yeah. Um, I mean, part of part of the question, I think, is is tied to the old stop motion or CGI. Yeah. And, and I have no problem at all with CGI. Um, I, you know, I love stop motion. That's where, you know, my heart, you know, latched onto but um, when used correctly, and I, I'm thinking here of the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films, um, you know, I think Gollum um, in Return of the King is one of the greatest fantasy characters ever created. And I love the CGI on that. Um, uh, that said, so, so I, I don't have an issue with, with Kong being done in CGI. And, and there were a lot of things I liked about the Peter Jackson version of Kong. Um, but I'll tell you, there's certain things that, I don't buy in the newer versions um, or um, don't really care for. Right. Um, to me, um, Carl Denham and Marion Cooper are very tied together in, mm. in, in things. And I've always found that in more of the recent Kong films, um, they try to make Denham. I, I think the writers are taking the easy way out and making Denham a villain. And, and either that or they add another character. That's the villain. And I thought part of why it made Kong so interesting was you could argue that there was no villain in the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's this, um, you know, force of nature. And, and on the other side, an enthusiastic movie producer trying to, you know, capture it. But, but nobody was, was out, you know, just to villainize things or just for profit. Um, if you read some of the early Kong scripts, it, it's amazing because... The Denim character is completely different before um, um, Ruth Rose came on, and uh, he's a, he actually is very much a heavy, and um, 
he actually, in some cases, he, he's beating um, his niece, who is the, uh, you know, eventually is the Faye Ray character, all the, you know, the, the names and places and change over the course. But, but I really like that whole relationship in King Kong with, with the, um, the enthusiastic showman and, and the, uh, and the force of nature. And I've never seen any film today um, come close to that. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the seventies version really took that ball and ran with it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I won't even talk about the seventies version. I'm not a big fan either. I know there's people out there that love that movie. And, uh, I don't know. A lot, some people might even shoot me for saying this, but I actually would rather watch King Kong lives. I, you know, um, <laughs> Yeah, that I can or, at least like laugh at and kind of have a good time with. I just find the the '70s version, I just think it's boring. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, the other I was I was going to say the other thing that gets me about some of the newer films is I just I cannot buy into um, you know a character like Ann Darrow um, spending these horrific twenty four hours or whatever <laughs> island and and being so fondly thinking of Kong in that period of time. Um, to me, she would have PTSD with the kind of circumstance she's gone through, and and I think he would have a hard time stopping her from from screaming if she wasn't in shock. Well, I, um, and I I think there's I, it's one thing to kind of be in her situation, maybe sympathize with and and think, okay, this is just like a big, you know, animal, you know. But I but yeah, I think uh, that's another thing that where the '70s version bothers me with like the way she talks to him, like he's like a dog <laughs> like oh hey buddy it's like nah yeah i, I yeah it, it does it doesn't work for me so you know maybe someday I, i'm not opposed to a, a another kong film being made or something but i just i haven't found anything that i've, I've yeah. seen well i mean I, I think it's obvious at this point they're gonna keep making the these movies until like sun burns out <laughs> you know i mean they're doing another they're doing a sequel to godzilla versus kong that's coming out in a couple years which that is like i don't know i can like enjoy it as like a schlocky kind of movie but it's still like to me there is a part of me that's like well these are two monsters that really used to mean something and i don't know they're just kind of like there to you know crash into each other like you know a kid playing with action figures yeah, I, I don't see a broader story of interest to me. Right, yeah, yeah. Or recent films, so, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, but, I, you know, I, I always try to look at, um, you know, I I enjoy most of them, at least to a degree, um, but, I, I mean, the cooler thing about it is, you know, especially kids that might go see Godzilla vs. Kong or whatever, a lot of those <laughs> kids are going to come home and turn on HBO Max or whatever and watch the 33 version. You know, um, I hope that's true. I really do. And yeah. um and you know, it's the same thing. Like I have um uh I have an eight year old daughter and you know, she's mostly into like, you know, little little girl stuff. But uh, you know, friends of mine that have uh have kids, especially those who have sons around the same age, you know, they'll take them to see Godzilla versus Kong or whatever, and then, you know, they come home and they're showing their kids, you know, the old Godzilla movies, the original Kong film and, and so that you know, I I think that's the silver lining is, you know, as good or bad as whatever else comes out is, there is always going to be people that are going to go back and check out the older stuff. Yeah, um, I, I, that's the case. Yeah, I, I uh, it's interesting. I I grew up with famous monsters and Forrey Ackerman and all of yeah. that. 
And um, at the at the time, we, um, I mean, Forey always promoted, you know, I mean, every issue had pictures of Ron Chaney as the Phantom of the Opera, these, you know, Pablo Jenner as the goal, and these, these great silent films. And we didn't care that they were silent or that they weren't in color. We were searching them out to find them anywhere we could. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's as prevalent uh, today as it, as yeah. it was. I think, and this is something I've had, uh, experienced with my own daughter. Um, if they're really young, I don't think stuff like that matters as much. Um, yeah. Like when I got into Godzilla and King Kong and the Universal Monsters and stuff like that, I was probably around eight years old. That would, you know, it was that would have been like ninety three, um, and I didn't care. You know, I I didn't care that you know the movies looked old or the cast was wearing outdated clothing or this was in black and white or this looks fake, you know, it didn't matter to me. And, um, you know, the, and, and my love of those, uh, monster movies has carried over into adulthood. And I think that, um, children that really are young, they, they don't think about, you know, that's a man in a suit. That's a, a, you know, a stop motion model. You know, there's a kind of purity, I think, to how they look at those things that I don't think comes in and, you know, the cynical side of it doesn't seem to come in until adulthood. Like my daughter, like, um, we watched mighty Joe young, no problem with the black and white, you know? So, so I, yeah, I I think for a certain age, it's just monsters are always going to be a hit no matter how they're brought to life, their color, whatever. All right. So, uh, talking about O'Brien or Obi, um, and we, we had mentioned, you know, earlier, you know, you going through all these, you know, archives and finding about, uh, finding out things people haven't written about and really kind of taking a deep dive into the more, I guess, obscure kind of deep cut titles. Um, so yeah, you're, you're kind of like the guy that's doing this with his stuff right now. And, and he's kind of one of the godfathers of, you know, not only stop motion, but just genre film, you know, The Lost World, King Kong, those were, you know, the first of what we would now consider, you know, the big budget adventure blockbuster movie. And uh, my thing is, it's in, I'm, I'm sure you have to share some of this frustration because you're doing a lot of this work. It's 2022 and we don't really have any definitive books or documentaries about Willis O'Brien the way that we do with, you know, a Harryhausen. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's some things like I know, um, Stephen Austin at one point was trying to do a documentary and, uh, there's the old Steve Archer book from like 1993. I mean, that's old and, you know, it, when it came out, I, you know, it was one thing, but now it's like, there's a lot of just outdated information, new information. Like what, why do you think like e- O'Brien had a hard life and never really got his due, and we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But even in death, it's like, you know, this guy isn't getting the attention that he deserves. Like, why Why do you think that is? You know, I, I, I can't say uh, at the high level. I can tell you from my perspective that I, I personally thought Don Shea did a great job yeah. of covering Brian and Cinefix. Yep. And, um, you know, when I first started um, going into the archives... I was kind of thinking, I didn't know that there was enough left to say about the man, yeah. right? You could find a few more scripts and write, you know, write about a few other things. 
but I wasn't sure if there was much le left to tell in the story. And then obviously, um, uh, Steven Zirkus, uh, found out some stuff that rewrote a little bit. Um, I've delved back into that and I'm, I'm trying to, I, I think the story is a little more complicated than either person told mm -hmm. it. Um, and, um, and so I, I really decided it was time to get that information out there. Um, why, uh, you know, it's hard to say why. I mean, I think, um, there was a lot of more interest, I'll say, in uh, probably Harryhausen because there's multiple generations that grew up with Harryhausen that are still yeah. around and buying books. In a and, more extensive body of work, really, yeah, you know. He, he had people that, that um, became, you know, Harryhausen fans in the 50s, and then there are people that, that uh, found Clash of the Titans in the 90s on TV that, that love his work. So, um, and he was around to, to spread the information. Yeah. And um, it, it's just, I think, a lot harder to uh, to come up with with both information and photos that people hadn't seen before for for Obi. Yeah. So I've been working hard to try to rectify that. <laughs> well, um, I, as you know, he, he had a very unfortunate life, professionally and personally, and so um, we're going to kind of walk down that road for a little bit. Um, uh, and, and, you know, some of this stuff is stuff that I just wonder that, and you might not have any idea or even a guess, but figure it's mm -hmm. worth asking since I have you here. Um, so, uh, like I said, this guy's life and career was just full of tragedy. You know, his career really kind of went in a downward trajectory. Um, you know, unlike someone like Harryhausen, um, and uh, one thing that I've seen that I don't know, I don't know how much truth there is to. So this is one of those things where I just want to see if you have any perspective on it, or you know, if you have no idea, whatever. But I figure it's worth asking. It is. It was said, or has been said, that uh, with um, Kong Thirty Three, he wanted uh, the Academy to award his entire crew, um, you know, for the 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 Academy Award. Um, and obviously that wasn't feasible, um, and that led to him having uh, a reputation as either being difficult or caused uh, you know, some of his project proposals to stall or not be considered. Um, do you feel like there's any truth to that at all? I, I really don't think that came into play. Um, yeah. And matter of fact, uh, that story that, that you mentioned, I've been trying to verify that story. Um, it, it came from people, um, firsthand, like Linwood Dunn used to tell that, um, tell that story. So there are people, um, that should have known, but, um, I've, I've checked through the Marion Cooper papers. I've checked with the Academy archives. I've checked with, um, the Selznick papers, and I have never been able to find any kind of, even as much as a sentence yeah. from the thirties saying that this Oscar situation existed. So, um, given Linwood used to tell the story, I, you know, it, it may have, you know, been something as simple as a phone call and, uh, and a, and a, and a little conversation, but there seems, it seems very strange to me that there's no record, um, that you can easily find right. in the, the archives. Yeah. Oh man. I, I got a couple more uh can you or can you not verify this questions coming up mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's one like some of the ones I'm going to bring up that uh just I don't know doesn't make yeah. never made much sense to me but but let me tell you I, I think the bigger thing about um 
Opius. And when you look at his career, he was working for Cooper off and on for years. Mm -hmm. Anytime Cooper had a project that had any kind of special effects, he was hiring Obi. Yeah. The, the problem was that Cooper was doing so many other things in his life. I mean, he was, you know, co-founding, you know, Pan Am Airways. He was fighting World War II. He was, you know, um, working Cinerama. He had, he was involved in big projects in multiple areas. And, um, and Obi never wanted to do small projects, you know, yeah. um, he kind of looked down on the stuff Ray Harryhausen started doing as, you know, that's kind of low budget stuff. And, you know, I'm sure he could have made more films if he wanted to, but that wasn't his thinking. I mean, eventually he kind of almost, for financial reasons, had to be forced to do it yeah. for the Black Scorpion type behemoth and came up with some great work, but that's not where he was comfortable at, you know. Yeah. In the end, he was still swinging for home runs on big projects trying to get it started. Yeah, I mean, and there's... There's such a giant list of those. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, Cooper going off to do, you know, yeah, I think it was war. Uh, that That's kind of what killed off um, War Eagles, right? War Eagles, yep. exactly. Yep. Um, that's one I heard of many moons ago, I don't know, probably like 10 years or so ago now, that someone was trying to, had, you know, I don't know, got the rights or something and was trying to make that again <laughs> but i i don't know that obviously didn't happen well my understanding is that comes back every couple of years yeah so you know the the more things uh hit, hit on streaming and and success um these days maybe we'll see it come up one day yeah. I mean, it would um, have to have a lot of rewrites i think to make yeah. it oh yeah <laughs> yeah um so uh i mean uh, we've talked about this before on this podcast i'm sure any a lot of people know this um but you know there was obviously the the personal tragedy of you know his first wife hazel killing their two sons and you know later attempting suicide and you know she would die about a year later actually a second wife yes oh okay um do one of those one of those things we need to correct yeah record. yeah well uh there was hazel and darlene so there was one before that, then. Yeah, rehab was first. Okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you. There. Uh, what I mean, do you? F what kind of impact do you think that had on his career, or you know, uh, how he worked? Yeah, I mean, it. It, it it's kind of interesting because people um, that I've read interviews with. Um, that knew Obi in the fifties and sixties, they they didn't talk about it. They didn't ever kind of even seem to know that it had happened if they weren't aware for some reason. Um, so the, usually they describe Obi as a pretty happy-go-lucky kind of guy, and uh, so you know it's hard to say what he was feeling inside. But most people didn't seem to realize what he was going through yeah. or had right. Um, and, and so I, I don't know that it, uh, you know, it, it clearly hurt him in the, in the 30s. And uh, there's a, a great uh, um, quote I've got from him uh, when he got assigned to, uh, with Cooper on Last Days of Pompeii. And, and he, he talked about really being excited to, to be living again and doing stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I kind of think he got past that. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was always with him, 
but I, I don't think it affected his ability to go out and make projects. Yeah. I mean, he, he, uh, he was pitching and working and, and Cooper had a lot of stuff going, you know, and had war Eagles really come to fruition, you know, that would have been a massive work. And, and they had done a ton of, yeah, between War Eagles and Guanji, uh, those two films had done so much pre-production effort that, um, you know, they hope you almost put in what it took to make a film on each yeah. of those. Yeah, and I'm sure he was getting paid for it, you know. But yeah, he was. He, you know, so. He was on Guanji, so that would have been very nice for him, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, uh, with the situation with Herbert Dolly, um, one of the things that I've heard is that um, one of the things that kind of held that up was uh, getting caught up in a, a, a Dolly had patented some part of the stop motion process and they mm-hmm. had to do so, some settlement outside of court. Is that something that um, uh, you have any more knowledge or insight into or if it how accurate that claim is or anything like that? Well, the, I mean, yeah, the uh, there, there's a lot of data on this and I've, I've got a whole kind of chapter on the Dolly confrontation. Um, you know, Dolly did patent the process, or not the process, he didn't patent stop motion. What he patented was called an articulated effigy, which he's basically patenting the, the concept of a stop motion animation model, right? And um, Like the and armature. Like the armature, but also the covering of the armature, the lubrication mm. of the armature, a lot of details like that. And uh, it's really interesting to, to look at that Knowing that, and he even includes details like air bladders um, to make the you know the creature breathe. Well, the thing is, he wrote this patent after uh, him and Obi had their falling out, and then they had been working together. Dolly had admitted to using O'Brien's armature parts and basically saying that they were very similar to his design. Um, O'Brien had previously on um, RFD ten thousand BC done. Um, animation with um, animals breathing in and out with bladders, a lot of the things Dolly had patented were already pre-existing art in O'Brien's work. So um, it would have been interesting if it ever came to court um, as to how this would have played out. Um, I think O'Brien made a lot of mistakes in that he he made claims that he was the only person that could do the work for, for the Lost World Project. And I think those claims were invalid given the work that Dolly had done. But Dolly made a lot of claims, I think, that... Uh, they kind of both were running a little wild there. I, right? I think they both... Yeah, I think... I view them as two very talented people that that um, butted heads and then took sides in a situation and um, and overstated their bounds on both sides, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, it's a shame they sense. couldn't have collaborated more at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I want to circle back a little bit to, um, you know, you were talking about how, you know, Cooper always, you know, was working with O'Brien and, you know, trying to, um, you know, uh, get projects done with him. And, uh, you know, Harryhausen had a producer like that in, in you know, Charles Schneer. Uh, Schneer. Um, do, you, do you feel like that is maybe um, the lack of a producer like, you know, how Harryhausen had... Charles Schneer is his partner. The the lack of a a really strong producing partner like that is why he did struggle so much. Where you know Harryhausen succeeded. Yeah, and and I won't say um, 
I have to rephrase it a little bit differently. I, I think Cooper was was very much um, enamored with O'Brien. He thought he was a genius. But there's a, the big difference between, I'll say, Cooper and Schneer, his partners, was Schneer was, was out to, to make the films that would sell. And he was willing to do, you know, lower budget films if, you know, people could be employed and make money and, and everything could go on. Cooper had so many was into so many different things that he only wanted to make the bigger films he cared to make. And, and Opie presented him with a lot of projects that Cooper just was not interested in. Right. Um, you know, Cooper was working, you know, he could work the searchers. He could work, you know, the fugitive, he could work, um, um, an air, an airline. He was doing <laughs> so many different things. And, and so, um, Part of the problem was I think Obi was relied relying in many ways on Cooper for the big projects, and Cooper wasn't in that full time. But if you look, Cooper had hired Obi to be um, technical on Cinerama. This is Cinerama with the intent that they were going to at some point make a King Kong Cinerama film. Um, Cooper kept hiring Obi for for different things that he probably didn't have to, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I, I, there's a quote somewhere that Darlene O'Brien made um, after Obi passed away, something like, uh, you know, Cooper probably spent uh, way too much of his money, you know, keeping us <laughs> um, <laughs> around um, because not, you know, too many of the projects didn't come to fruition, right? Yeah. Yeah, Lord knows <laughs> a lot of the times when he did actually get some kind of deal going with other producers, that Lord knows that didn't <laughs> that didn't turn out well. Um, yeah, yeah whether it's, you know, John Beck with uh, King Kong versus Frankenstein or um, what's the guys, the guys that did Hollow Mountain. Oh, the Nasser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Yeah, it's almost like <laughs> whenever he did get like an idea somewhere, he always ended up getting stabbed in the back somewhere with that. Irwin Allen, yeah. uh, there's a lot of those. And the John Beck one on King Kong vs. Frankenstein is, is you know, unfortunately extra uh, disappointing because uh, Cooper was the one that helped uh, Obi to, to work with RKO and Beck and some mm-hmm. others work those rights issues out. Yeah. Obi was not a businessman, and uh, he you, you could see it throughout his career. He, uh, he didn't properly protect some of his business options, mm-hmm. and uh, they took advantage of him on this yeah. one. And especially back then, uh, like a lot of people just didn't didn't know any better. I mean, part of that whole thing with you know King Kong, the the whole like origin story of King Kong versus Godzilla is like a bunch of different people thought they like had the rights to it, <laughs> and then RKO said, "No, we have the rights." So it, it, things, yeah, things, copyright and trademark and all that stuff really, you know, IP ownership wasn't quite as clear back then. I don't think. Well, you know, yeah, it should have been, but part of the part of the reason was Cooper uh, didn't quite get the documentation he needed back in '33 because Cooper himself was fighting with RKO on the ownership. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, a very interesting, you know, legal battle that you know eventually the Cooper estate eventually won, but that wasn't until after Cooper's death. So yeah, yep, uh, oh, yeah, the Kong legal stuff is. <clears throat> That's a web that I I haven't talked to anyone that can like truly untangle it. I've talked to uh do you know Ray Morton? 
I know of him. Yeah, yeah. I, I talked to him, and he wrote, you know, a fairly comprehensive book on the history of the movies, and it's just, it's such a, it's one of the most convoluted things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I want to, well, speaking of, you know, uh, some of those stories, um, with The Beast of Hollow Mountain, there there's kind of conflicting reports as to, I guess, what really went down there. From what I understand, they had bought... Uh, you know the story that um, was it, it was Guanji basically, right? Uh, no, it was a separate story. It was a se- okay. It was well, a that's another story. thing that I hear all the time, and maybe it's because they're both westerns. But that's another thing I yeah. hear all the time is like that it, it it was a version of Guanji that got you know turned into this other thing. Um, yeah. Well, what what exactly uh, what exactly happened with that? Well, so, um, you know, um, the Nassers bought the story, The Beast of Hollow Mountain, from, from Obi. It was a separate story. He had written a lot. He had written several dinosaur um, uh, Western-type um, projects. And uh, and they bought the story rights. Obi fully thought he was going to uh, be doing the effects. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously that didn't come to pass. Um, I will say that Obi did a lot of storyboards for the film, um, some that look a lot like the scenes that ended up in the final um, in the, the final film, so he was he was doing more than just the original story, um, and some of these storyboards have Nassar stamps on them, Nassar Studio stamps on them. But at some point, Nassar always was interested in stop motion himself. I mean, he had he had done the work for the uh, Lost Continent in 1951. He was and he was very interested in uh, George Pell and the Puppetoon, so he wanted to to try his own stuff. And my guess is there's. Um, between Nasser's trying to do something on his own on for the cheap and O'Brien trying to do what O'Brien usually did, which was to do a, a very grand project, he was he was pricing himself out of the market. And that gave uh, Nasser an opportunity to work with people like Henry Lyon and uh, and do the replacement animation and build a uh, puppet, um, partially which he learned by... Uh, by dismantling one of the mighty Joe Young horses and uh, the Guanji armature, so um, they they ended up uh, not using it. But Nasser's continued to buy story ideas from Obi. And matter of fact, Darlene says that many a time when they uh, were running low on money as the projects weren't coming in, Obi would take another you know story idea or two and sell it to Edward Nasser, and mm. that would keep them in the apartment for another few months. Was this? I might have this way wrong, but was there a similar thing with um, the King brothers? Um, and I think it was the Brave one. Oh, um, yeah, that one's not quite as crystal clear. Um, there was another um, uh, another story Opie uh, did um, involving kind of a boy and a bull, and eventually a dinosaur. Um, and uh, it's called under different names, but it's Emilio and Galuso was the original story that Obi wrote. And uh, in the end, there was a movie called The Brave One that came out that is very similar to the story. Um, doesn't have the dinosaur, but it's about a boy and a bull. And in the end, the bull is, is um, going into the bullfighting ring and going to be killed. And you know, his bullfights <laughs> end up that way. And uh, there was a there was a thought that people um, that had written that script, and actually it was Dalton Trumbo. Eventually, yep. when you find out from the blacklist, um, um, th- there was there was some thought that that script was stolen from Obi. 
Uh, personally, I doubt it because there were three or four different versions of that story, and supposedly there was actually a true story behind this uh, that was set in Spain that got all of these, you know, probably was the source material in a newspaper article that inspired all of these yeah. people. Even Orson Welles did a uh, a short, um, uh, never finished, but a short version of this story that he started working on, so... All right. Uh, well, another project that, uh, again, there's just some uncertainty, depending on where you look, that I'm wondering if you have any um, clarification on is um, the Irwin Allen remake of The Lost World from 1960. Uh, some say that O'Brien had always, in, you know, was hired from the start, you know, with them not uh, intending to move forward with him and doing animation, always knowing that they were going to do, you know, the, the reptiles with the fins glued onto them. Um, and others say that, uh, you know, O'Brien was let go later on in production um, because of budgetary reasons. Um, is that something where uh, you feel like he was, you know, kind of hired for his name uh, value and then dumped? Or, is, you know, is it less, I guess, insidious than that? No, I, I think much less insidious and there's documentation that backs this one up. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about some of these questions, you can argue what people were thinking and, and such, but, um, the Irwin Allen papers shed a lot of light on what happened. And, um, O'Brien was doing a lot of design work and camera setups and things for a stop motion version of the lost world. They even had looked into using, um, some footage from the animal world, um, for the, uh, a Stegosaurus Ceratosaurus fight to be as used as probably a rear projection source for the Lost World. So they were absolutely going to do stop motion at one point in time. Um, there are even letters um, captured in the uh, Irwin Allen papers that are between Irwin and uh, Ray Harryhausen, where Irwin Allen was trying to get Ray Harryhausen to um, break off from the films he was making in. Um, London at the time and to come over and, and work several uh, weeks of animation for the lost world. Unfortunately, while all this was going on, um, this little film called Cleopatra was um, blowing its budget um, tremendously um, overseas. And, uh, and so people kind of gave uh, Irwin Allen the, the view that if he could hold a budget under a certain amount on the lost world, the film would get made. And L.B. Abbott um, really pushed to use um, um, lizards based on the work that they had done on Journey to the Center mm -hmm. of the Earth. So there was a meeting that was held, which included Alan and Ralph Ameris and Willis O'Brien and L.B. Abbott. And in the end of that meeting, they, they made the decision to do um, the live reptiles. So um, O'Brien did stay on the project. He got paid and he got credited. But, um, you know, unfortunately, he, he was completely disappointed. My guess is he did almost nothing after they made that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, I would, yeah. I would imagine. But, yeah, but this is a case where got, you could dive into the documents and find actual documents that say, no, Irwin Allen didn't just hire him for his name value on a promotional. Um, he, he had really intended to use him. Okay, well, I mean, that's good to hear, you know, hopefully, you know, because I'm, I'm sure you've seen those accounts, too, that, you know, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, this is going to be, a, I guess, a, a little bit more of a personal question. You know, stop motion existed before 
Willis O'Brien stop motion dinosaurs were used, you know, in even stuff like uh, what's the Buster Keaton uh, Three Ages. Yeah. Um, but what do you feel that Obi himself brought to the table um, compared to uh, you know some of his contemporaries, you know Herbert Dolly or you know or anyone else from the time period? What what is it that uh, you think made him is innovative and unique um, comparatively. You know, um, to me, a big part was, was what O'Brien did was he was into extremely, I'll call them beautiful compositions. He was like an art director. He could, he could just define what a scene would look like and it would have an animated character, a painted background, a painted foreground and uh, an actor in a rear projection, an actor on the other side of the screen in a rear projection, and and a, and a character in the creature. Um, and I think he integrated all that together in a very realistic way. And, um, I mean, I love a lot of the old stop motion. You know, Ladislaw Sterovich is one of my favorite um, filmmakers of all time. But, but Sterovich didn't do this realistic feel. I, I think Obi was the first one that did it on a grand scale, where... You know, you not only had a creature that felt like it was living, it was a creature that was living in an environment that was beautiful to look at to begin with. And you see that on the plateau in the Lost World, and you see it on almost every frame on Skull Island in yeah. Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, I guess the, the ups and downs of his career. And, you know, after Mighty Joe Young is kind of when things really, really kind of grind to a halt and he has the work for hire kind of stuff like uh you know um the one puppetoon that that he did for george pal and then there's giant behemoth black scorpion i mean you'd kind of alluded to this earlier but but those were more or less i just accepting work because it was work <laughs> at that point right yeah. you know and Darlene, there's lots of quotes and, and letters from Darlene to uh, Don Shea and others. I mean, he was he was uh, struggling to, uh, you know, to pay the rent many many times. So um, uh, that that was a lot of the 1950s. Unfortunately, um, he was he was uh, helping out on the Cinerama project. He was he was under Cooper's employ. Um, he was helping devise what a stop motion projector projection system and a uh, camera setup would look like for for a stop motion scene for a king kong version of this is cinerama unfortunately those things never got made so yeah. you know there were things he was getting paid for that that never made the uh the deal but you know there was also i mean darlene o'brien would talk about this was more in the 1940s during the war but you know sometimes he would just uh do do a matte painting here and there for films so yeah, O'Brien yeah. deserves i mean we don't even know all the films he worked on because he did many matte paintings over the years just to pay some bills. Yeah. I've and, heard people say that he did one for Citizen Kane, but then I hear other people say that that was like recycled from Son of Kong. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know anything about that. Some one. of that stuff, you know, we're probably just never going to know, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Never. I mean, um, you know, Laranaga obviously did a lot of the, the uh, paintings on uh, for Obi. And, uh, and he did the stuff on Citizen King, so it's very popular, possible that he uh, had used the leftover glass or something. But yeah. 
And with um, with the puppet tune, he did Tulips Shall Grow, which O'Brien uh, worked with Harry Hausen on that. But what, with that, wasn't that more just like he hated the way they animated stuff? Because they did like the replacement heads and all that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure he was on Tulips. So I'd have to go check. But um, yeah, he definitely did not like the process. Yeah, he, was uh, just, he did one of them and was like, I... <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think I think that was Obi felt. I think he was in some sort of menial position there and didn't didn't stay long. Yeah, this is probably a little bit of a silly question, but it's something I've just wondered on and off. Um, and I I don't I I doubt that that this is the case, but it's just something I can't help but wonder. Um, and you know, uh, more, you know, you're not going to know because all these people are dead now and <laughs> anyway, but um, do you uh, do you feel like somewhere he may have had, did he, as far as you know, have you ever heard that there was maybe any bitterness or resentment towards Harryhausen because, you know, Harryhausen had basically been so successful, um, really kind of very specifically in a field where O'Brien was kind of struggling to, to find work. Yeah. You know, um, you could read some of Darlene's letters over the years and you could tell that there was a little resentment on her part at some points in time. I think eventually she came around to, uh, to really liking, uh, Ray and, and his family. Um, but I never got the impression that Obi felt that. I mean, everybody always described Obi as, as happy-go-lucky, and uh, he could bounce away from everything. And and supposedly, they they uh, he he had a philosophy that multiple people commented on in interviews uh, that I've read, um, you know, from the time uh, that basically, hey, if somebody's if somebody takes something from me, uh, you know, I've got enough ideas in my head. I'm just going to come up with another one. Yeah. Um, you know, probably the, the biggest thing that shows maybe a little bit of resentment at all is is he wrote at one point um, on one of his, uh, I think it was for the last of the Osasipapu, um, and in one of his story treatments, he wrote a little front-end piece that, that basically said, if anybody wants to put a name to my process, they should probably call it origination because I was the one doing it before the rest. Oh, I see. And, and, Dynama- and he's taking a jab at dynamation. Yeah, jab at dynamation. Uh, he's taking a jab at regiscope from, from NASA, from the Beast of Hollow Mountain, yeah. um, and, and a lot of other terms that were being coined around that time frame in the fifties. So, um, you know, I'm sure there had to be a little bit of resentment, but he also, um, how do I say, Obi was. You know, I, I think a lot of people view Obi as a guy that would sit there and, and animate it, and and I view him very differently when you look at the records. On Kong, he had a huge team. Mm-hmm. On, on you know, originally everybody used to think that he animated all of the Lost World, and then you see the excerpts where there's the clapperboards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the outtakes. Yep. And you've got multiple people. I mean, he did a lot of the animation, but. But there were multiple people animating, and there were a lot more people, um, you know, there were more people animating on Kong. I expect by the time he got to the War Eagles, you know, Obi was working so much on the the broad details of how to make the overall image work between all the projection systems and the backgrounds and everything, and the uh, the layout of the shot, that he would have had very little hands-on animation. Obi liked to have a big team. Yeah, well, that's kind of like with Mighty Joe Young, like it said that he animated practically none of it <laughs> yeah you know I mean, I, 
for all the animation logs for Mighty Joe Young. Fortunately, the the whole film wasn't logged. Uh, I don't think they started logging the uh, the details of the animation until they uh, they really got well behind schedule and the in the uh, exec started complaining too much. But there's very few shots that will be animated. Um, but he was. You could tell there were a lot of setups going on simultaneously, and you just knew Obi was working on all those setups. Mm-hmm. And uh, what year was uh, what year was Animal World? Uh, Fifty six. Okay, so it, you know him and Harryhausen, you know they collaborated on that. So you know, mm-hmm. um, and that was I don't know what six seven years or so before he passed away or something. So yeah, I mean, I, and you know, I never heard either of them say anything bad about each other. No, and, and Ray always, I mean, Ray always spoke to me of uh, very affectionately about Obi. I yeah. mean, he uh, he was in awe of him. So. Um, uh, Ray would never say a bad word about Obi, and uh, yeah. and and he treated uh, they treated Darlene very well in, in her later life too. So, um, well, speaking of, I guess uh, varying accounts of how much he did or didn't animate, um, another one that you hear a lot about that it just has a lot of fogginess to it is Son of Kong. You know, mm-hmm. I've I've heard some people say he didn't do any of it, but you know, there there are photos of him, you know, looking at the models or you know being, you know, on the set with with the models or things like that. Um, uh, how, do you, and obviously, you know, that whole thing with you know, uh, you know, his his sons getting killed and all that happened around that time. Do you have any idea how much hands on work he did with with that? I know he wasn't satisfied with the end result but yeah um so so i have to clarify a few things here right because a lot of people say that with the death of ob's sons that got him disgruntled and he and he stayed away from the production and uh any statements like that are are completely false if only because of the fact that the miniature work on son of kong was over weeks before his his kids were killed Mm. so all the uh, production activities were done. They were basically um, at the point of maybe doing a few more composites or something, but they were, uh, the miniature sets had had shut down and they were probably editing the film and getting ready to score it when, um, when Hazel took his, his two sons lives. So that said, um, I I think there's no doubt Obi was disgruntled. Um, uh, Lots of stories would say that he, um, he wasn't too interested in doing the film. He didn't like the humor. Um, but I think there's also, um, you know, some of the, some of the shots in Son of Kong feel to me like Obi, but, mm-hmm. um, I think Buzz Gibson did the majority of the animation there. Unfortunately, the RKO production records, um, they do not say, they talk about how much footage was done each day. So somebody was keeping track of that, but they did not say what scene they were shooting and who was doing the animation for each scene. So unfortunately... Unless there's a not another document somewhere uh, else, um, we're probably just going to have to guess about yeah. this. Well, so um, I guess how much? Because se- I mean, I I know just the the whole character of you know the 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 son of Kong, and you know I guess it, it being such a kind of goofy, uh, kitty kind of humor uh, there. How much? I mean, how much say did he really have in you know the characterization of of that creature? You know, was that just something that you know the people at RKO were like, "Oh, we want it to be like goofy," and Obi was just like, eh, "Well, 
okay, whatever, I, I can't do anything about it? Or did he have, like, a certain amount of influence over that, do you think? No, I, I don't think he had any influence over there, and that yeah. was probably part of the frustration. I, I think, and I don't think that it came so much from RKO. I really think, um, you look at the documentation and the script development, I think it came from um, Ruth Rose and Ernest Schoetzak. Yeah. They, they did not have a big enough budget and Ruth is quoted. Uh, I mean, Ruth made a comment at some point, uh, basically saying something like, "If you can't make it bigger, you have to make it funnier." Yep, I remember. Yeah, I know. I know. I know that quote. Yeah, um, uh, and right away from the very first script, um, it that's kind of the way it is. You can see the the slant in the character. Yeah, and 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 you know, the character doesn't feel like an O'Brien character. Like you had mentioned um, when I asked about, you know, what was unique about him is, you know, he really gave all his creatures personality, but not like, not so human-like, not so goofy. Like I remember, um, for example, you know, the original Kong, um, there was, uh, I, I'm, I was, I was checking out an interview with, uh, Quentin Tarantino and I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase this probably horribly, but he essentially said, if you look at the Kong on the posters and the way that he's drawn and compare it to the Kong in the movie, it's almost like two completely different characters because when O'Brien got a hold of it, that's where everything that you feel about King Kong comes into play. It's what makes him sympathetic. It's what makes him um, interesting. It's what makes him a compelling character. Whereas I think what he was trying to say was if you'd given that to any other animator, he probably just would have been like a, you know, just a, a brute. There's, there's really a heart in Kong. Um, right. Comes out. But, but one thing that's interesting is that, um, you look at Obi's films, uh, at least from the lost world on, and you say, well, maybe he didn't have a sense of humor. But you look at his artwork, and you'll see something in the exhibit. He had a huge sense of humor, um, and and if you watch his silent shorts, oh yeah, that, that's all they are. Um, and and uh, somewhere along the line, though, those films never got made. And I think, uh, you know, following up um, with Son of Kong, there were there were some explicit things I think in that he, that film he didn't like, and there's. There's some comments that he was giving his middle finger, right? When right. Yeah. Kong does that, uh, that you know, people say that that there's a couple shots in there that are pretty sure will be uh, animated because of those kinds right, of things. Right, right. Um, okay, so here's another one. Uh, this is a more obscure claim, but it, I have seen it surface. Um, uh, the night Jack Harris, you know, uh, maker of the Blob. He had uh-huh. made, uh, in 1960, the movie Dinosaurus, which used stop-motion dinosaurs. Um, and he says, uh, and this is even on the Blu-ray disc that came out a few years ago, um, he said that uh, O'Brien had c- at least come in to advise or consult on that movie at some point. I know Marcel Delgado worked on it. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if that's anything... Aside from Jack Harris saying that, it's just not something I've... Heard. So I, I, I don't know if that's something that you've stumbled upon uh, at all or, or anything. Yeah, I mean, Harris has said that a few times, and it's actually in his autobiography. Um, when you read Harris's autobiography, I mean, I, I believe what he says, because it makes sense. Obi would, would consult. He would, you, you could bring him in, and he would help like with a budget or something. Mm. And I think that's what he probably did, is, is I expect Harris went to him and 
ask them for, you know, maybe rough out a budget or how much it should cost or some, some things. And I would not be surprised uh, if if uh, Obi didn't point him to Marcel Delgado and people to talk to. Yeah, yeah. But I doubt he did much more than that. Um, if you go back to look at things like the animal world, I mean, Irwin Allen, when he first hired Obi, didn't intend to do this big prehistoric sequence with all these dinosaurs. He was looking at a, a few short shots, and he hired Obi to do a few drawings first, and that eventually became you know, a bigger project. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that uh, Harris hired Obi for a very small amount of time, got some input from him, probably helped with the budgeting process, uh, but he couldn't afford Obi. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I mean, it sounds like when he had to, he would accept like a black scorpion or a giant behemoth. But, you know, I mean, if those paid him well, you know, maybe he was just like, you know. I'm good. I don't, you know, maybe if maybe if that had come to O'Brien's doorstep a few years earlier, he might have just said, "I I need the money. I'll animate it." Oh, uh, very well possible. But at, you know, at that point, he was uh, looking at um, a big what he thought was going to be a big production of the Lost World with Irwin yep. Allen. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, I know you said he kind of frowned upon some of the Harryhausen stuff as, you know, it's low-budget B-movie, kind of, you know, I want to do bigger stuff. Do you think that if Harryhausen said, like, oh, hey, you know, I can get you some work on, you know, I don't know, any Earth versus the Pl Flying Saucers or something, do you feel like that's something that he would have found beneath him, or do you think that's something he might have gone for? Well, you know, the fact that he did what he did for the giant behemoth on such a low budget means at some point Obi would have said yes. Right. If, right. Yeah. There was the money there. That, that's my guess as much as he wouldn't have liked it, yeah. so, but it would have to be dependent. It'd be very dependent on year because if he thought he had a big project going that, you know, he, that might've been no. Right. Uh, for example, you know, when you got close to, uh, you know, 1960, he's thinking about King Kong versus Frankenstein. Yep. He's got Irwin Allen, um, so there was enough irons in the fire. He might've said no. Right. Yeah. Um, it, giant behemoth is a weird one too, because that was originally like a, a like a, about a blob or like a amoeba or something. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. That that's, I, I haven't been able to find that early story treatment, but that's, that's what, um, uh, the director Eugene Lurie said. And, uh, uh, I guess at some point the many me the money men uh, funding the project said they wanted something much more like a dinosaur. So <laughs> a weird, you know. I mean, they really but... twenty thousand fathoms is what they wanted, right? So, um, all right. So it was only a matter. I'm sure you're thinking, when is he just going to mention it? Because it's only a matter of time before this came up, and that is the spider pit sequence. Okay. From Kong 33. Uh, there's so many wild, crazy stories, some out, super outlandish and easily debunkable to others that are, you know, have, you know, maybe, I guess, a little more credibility or nuance to them. But there's a few uh, ideas about this that I just want to get your thoughts on. Um, so I, I'd mentioned, you know, I, I, I've, I interviewed the author, um, Ray Morton, uh, about the spider pit scene, and he was under the uh, impression that um, the sequence, at least as scripted, wasn't even shot. You know, this the, and that the the pictures that exist 
were, uh, you know, test images, and maybe there was even some test footage, but that uh, the sequence isn't, you know, um, I guess this famous deleted scene. Um, and now his his reason for thinking that was that um, uh, as far as what he had seen, it wasn't listed on any of the shooting schedules um, that he was able to, uh, to access, uh, even though other sequences, um, I think the example given was, you know, Kong jumping from rooftop to rooftop, I think was one, um, is on there. So what is your take on that? And I mean, do you believe that that scene, the way that people talk about it, um, existed, I guess? I believe there were several animation cuts done for the scene. Whether it was actually ever completely edited into a print, I, I don't know for sure. Um, but I but I believe they did the animation. Um, I have never, um, you know, people talk about the uh, the records and the statuses, and you know, I've looked at everything in the Cooper papers and the RKO production files, and I cannot find a status update that's done near the end of the film um, that, that actually includes a lot of the New York shots and the train sequences and everything, which is when the spider pit work was going to be done. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I, you know, unless I find a complete status update that shows me the train sequence and that still shows the spider pit is on, on shot. I, I really don't believe it. Um, Cooper, um, adamantly said, um, he shot it. Um, uh, uh, Darlene used to say that Opie thought it was his best work. Um, Delgado made references to it being some of their best work um, for the shots. So I really think it was, uh, I, I really think at least several of the shots were done. And the fact that, you know, a lot of the, the photos that are out there are, are slot prints, which were done for checking the lighting before you shot a scene. Mm -hmm. To me, that, I mean, if they Something got that, was, why are you going to finish it? Yeah. Um, now, that doesn't mean that that it ever got fully edited into a film. Right. I have no doubt. I mean, anybody that tells me they saw the scene, oh, you know, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, once with Ray Bradbury and, Ray yep. and I saw Ray Harryhausen roll his eyes when Bradbury talked about seeing the scene. Yeah. That's, kid, right? he's, yeah. He's misremembering. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. And he also <laughs> said he remembers the light through the birth canal. So yeah. <laughs> I wonder about that. But, um, you know, when I look at the dates, uh, I found a reference from January 15th, I believe it is, 1933, where Cooper says the scene is out of the film. Yeah. That's before any test screenings and while the score is being written. We know the score was written for the scene without it. Um, it's it, it's publicly been said to be cut out of the film before the first preview. So, you know, I don't believe anybody that says there's a, a print in circulation with it. Yeah, I, I think the middle ground between it was done, it was in the movie, it was taken out, and it wasn't done at all, I, th I think, and with the evidence of, of the photographs, I think it's, my guess is that maybe some some shots were animated or maybe just as test footage or something, and that's probably as far as it got. Yeah, well, they they also um, uh, they also shot sh did shots live action shots of the uh, of the men uh, on the scene and in the mud because um, Cooper talks about that 
And it was actually um, Selznick, I'm sorry, not Selznick, um, Shotzak never saw the spider pit scene. Mm. But he was off. Um, Selznick actually flew to Arabia while King Kong was in the later stages of um, um, post-production. <coughs> so he wouldn't have seen the film. He left uh, right after they shot the, the scene of the of Cooper and uh, and Shotzak in the airplane. And he went to Arabia, and he didn't come back till the the film was uh, already cut, scored, and uh, and previewed. So it's interesting to think that what's maybe the most famous like deleted scene, quote unquote, ever might have just never even like <laughs> existed, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd love to find it, but I I don't <laughs> think you will. I. Uh, my guess is some something of it was probably edited, if only because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, Cooper and the editor, Ted Cheeseman, were spending a lot of time um, at night, you know, touching up the film and the pacing and constantly reiterating that. Yeah, so, um, yeah. I mean, it could just be something like a couple seconds might have been done and they just said, okay, just we're not going to use this scene. It, it seems well, like the decision was probably made pretty early not to move forward with it. It would have been, well, it, it probably was made in the November, December timeframe, right? As I said, it was definitely made by January, mid-January. It hadn't been made by um, mid to late October, uh, the year before it was released. So, so there's about a two to three month window um, where it's in and then it's out. Yeah. Um, okay. Here's one that drives me crazy. This one drives, <laughs> this one drives me so crazy that I, I wrote an article about it. <laughs> um, and, uh, my friend John LeMay, who writes a lot about, um, like lost projects, he has a fanzine, um, you know, John LeMay, uh, he has a lost films fanzine, which originally published this. And then it's also in his book, Kong Unmade, which is all about, you know, uh, King Kong projects that never happened throughout the years. And uh, when I was writing my piece about it, I interviewed um, Mark Wolf, I interviewed Ernest Farino, and they both agreed with me. And the I'm speaking, of course, about the uh, constantly repeated uh, idea that the Black Scorpion somehow reused some models or some puppets from that spider pit sequence. Um, mm -hmm. The conclusion that uh, those guys uh, gave a pretty, they both gave a pretty compelling argument. Um, you know, Mark uh, even owned, uh, you know, the, the worm puppet from Black Scorpion for a time. Um, the conclusion that they came to was that there's really no evidence to back that up, mostly because it would have been RKO property that he would have had to like quite literally sneak out of the studio to use. Um, uh, you know, Jim Danforth talks about, uh, um, you know, uh, the Kong model still being at RKO long after, you know, O'Brien wasn't anywhere in sight and that there was like a matter of, I mean, you have 1933 versus 1957, I believe. And it's just, there's no real way those, those models would be anywhere near working condition. Um, and so, yeah, they, they gave a pretty compelling argument that that's probably just not true. And, you know, if anything, maybe some of the creatures in the Black Scorpion, Obi might have been, um, you know, going off of 
referencing the old his older designs or or something like that, but there just doesn't seem to be any evidence to that. So I was wondering if you had anything to add to that, or or if you found anything um, the opposite to prove that maybe it is true. But it's it's one that this is one of those things that I just one day I, I just had realized I'd seen it so many times, but without any real source to back it up. So what's your take on that whole thing? Yeah, uh, I, I think you were talking to the right people um, to a large extent. Uh, the worm, I, you know, I've, I've looked at the the model of the worm with Mark Wolf. It's it's made with uh, these resin pieces that they did not do. Um, yeah, it was stuff they didn't they weren't doing in the thirties. Yeah, and, and it and the the model design ties back to another OB shorts um, shorts short project uh, story treatment that dates to probably the nineteen you know early nineteen fifties. Um, and the same with the scorpion puppets. I think the only one that's questionable is the trapdoor yep. spider. Yep. And um, there's no reason to say that. I mean, I, I think there's no solid evidence either way. Is could it have come from the film or not? I, my understanding was Dave Allen thought it did come from from Kong, but you know we can't ask. At least I can't yep. ask Dave why he, he might have felt that. Um, I would not be surprised that. You know, Obi had kept some designs or some, you know, sketches or something that he may have used in the guidance. So the fact that a photo from 1933 matches the, uh, you know, kind of um, kind of a model look from 1957 doesn't surprise me. Obi would reuse designs if he if he wanted to. Um, but I, I unfortunately I cannot find any solid evidence one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's. Kind of where we all were. It, it, we, I think Mark. I think it was Mark that said, "If in this like a giant if anything would have been reused, it would have been the trap spider." But again, it's just like the likelihood is just small, just because of various factors. Yeah, I mean, if Obi had it, I'm sure he would have used it. Yeah, but did he have it? Um, Darlene always talked about Obi as not being the kind of person that kept around those kinds of things. Yeah. And that's another. I think. I think it was Mark that said, like, if if it was true, he f- he said he felt like it's something that she would have mentioned to him at some point because they talked about King Kong all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, speaking of Darlene, another thing that I've heard that uh, this is this is the last, and then we're we're gonna get right into uh, the exhibit. But this is the last kind of uh, uh, sort of mythbustersy kind of question. Um, and uh, again, it might not be something you have any real knowledge or insight or evidence of, but um, I've heard it said that Darlene O'Brien had believed that, you know, the whole, the, 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 the stress of the, uh, the whole King Kong versus Godzilla, John Beck, King Kong versus Frankenstein situation, the fallout from that um, uh, probably contributed to his, you know, his early death. Um, is that something that uh, you have any idea if or any theories about well i mean uh darlene definitely said that on multiple occasions um and and you know the timing was not immediate so you could never prove any causality right i mean obi was aware for months that king kong versus godzilla was being made before he had his heart attack um supposedly he had been in a you know extremely extremely upset when you he heard about it, hey, um, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, also um, historically, Darlene always talked about Obi being, you know, bouncing back every time, you know, 
somebody stole an idea or there was a project that he used that uh, you know, he felt he got ripped off yeah. for. So. I th- and uh, in general, though, I think he, he I don't know, he, wasn't he, he I, th- I would think he had some health issues at the time anyway. I mean, yeah, it, it's not, you know, let's face it, Opie was a heavy drinker. Yep. He was, you know, um, you know, not the, probably not the most physically fit man at, you know, at, at his age. Um, it's it's uh, uh, under stress and uh, working on it's a mad, 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 mad world is a possibility. I'm sure this added to the stress. I'm oh, sure. yeah. Well, okay. yeah, that, that's another one that um, some people say he worked. I mean, just like. He has a credit, so a lot of people say or think he worked on that, but he died before he ever actually got to do any animation or anything on that one, yeah. even, right? Yeah, he died before the animation models were even built, right? Um, but he but he did do um, artwork for the film, and he did a lot of um, uh, design concepts, and uh, he did thumbnails. Um, Jim Danforth talked about um, seeing a lot of Obi's uh, gags, for that ladder rescue scene, you know, gags, opiate drawn out storyboards of, you know, different comedic situations that could happen. And, uh, I remember Jim saying, I think he says this in his memoir as well. Um, Obi's stuff was so much better than what ended up on the final film. Right. <laughs> so, so Obi did do work on the project. He, he was going in and, and working hard. Uh, how much, you know, how much of that ended up in the final film? Maybe not a lot other than I think he kind of, Obi was almost effectively an art director for some of these shots. And I think some of that, you know, final shot of the big building um, probably came from him. But, um, but yeah, he, he didn't work on any of the final effects. He was, he, he passed away before they had the cameras rolling on that, on the effects. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I want to talk about this um, exhibit. Like I said, uh, coming right up, January 23rd to February 23rd. Uh, it's free for all ages at Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, and uh, as I went to EMU, uh, I graduated from EMU. I spent a lot of time at EMU. And uh, this really isn't the kind of, of thing that I associate with, with, with EMU. Um, so, uh, I mean, I just... I guess I'll just start. Uh, obviously, I was o- over the moon when I, I'd seen that you uh, you announced that, um, uh, you know, and I, I just was so happy. I couldn't believe myself what I was, you know, seeing. But um, yeah, I just want to start. You know, how how did this um, the the Kong at ninety exhibit? How did it come together? I mean, how long has this been in the works? Oh well. Um... <clears throat> So, so really, it was a, a, an idea that me and Professor Sukhan at EMU started tossing around probably about five years ago. I mean, it was well before the pandemic. And uh, I, we were just talking on the phone one day, and, uh, and uh, we had been friends since first grade, right? We both loved these kinds of films, and we had both... Uh, we had our own production company, as we called it in high school, Sulan Films, right? And we made Super 8 projects in our backyards. And... Uh, we just thought it would be great to uh, to get some of this artwork that nobody's ever seen in uh, at a at a gallery for his art students to see, and uh, both him and his uh, his wife are uh, professors at the university, and he started, uh, you know, we started figuring out how we could, uh, you know, what what the theme would be, what things we wanted to focus on for this exhibit, and he started writing up for a series of grants, and uh, 
know, a few times while the pandemic was raging, we got really worried that, you know, we were going to get derailed here. Um, but everything seems to have, have worked out great. And uh, we're glad we, we have uh, an exhibit that's, you know, I mean, it's going to be free to the public. We've got a catalog that we're, we, we're pretty excited about. It's going to be, you know, free to, pe- to the people attending the exhibit. And, uh, and we're, we're, hoping, uh, we're hoping to get the students to see a lot of the artwork that was used in the pre-production of some of these films. Because I think a lot of this artwork is, you know, uh, people that work on these films, they're, they're defining what the visual imagery is that people will remember, right? And, and uh, in many ways, some of these guys that are doing the early art on these projects, like Obi, they're, they're very much like the art designers on the film. And we thought it was worth telling that story. Um, mm-hmm. and, and telling in such a way that we have art from, you know, the different kinds of art, you know, the concept arts, the, uh, the art that's used to design a map painting, the art that's used to, uh, design a sequence, the story, you know, sequential storyboard art. And we've even included some art that's made in the, uh, you know, the post-production to sell the film, right? Because we wanted to talk about in the catalog, you know, the difference between designing a piece of art to sell the project to the guys that might finance a film versus designing the art to get somebody to say, wow, I want to go see that in the movie theater. Right. And we wanted to kind of give a feel for the different pieces and the different thoughts that were in there. So we were very excited that it came together. And uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of surprised. Um, I mean, I, that, that it's at EMU, but the, the, uh, the uh, university has been very supportive and, funded pretty much all the grants that we asked for and have been very helpful. And, uh, I mean, I was surprised that they even, you know, agreed to pay for the cost of printing up these catalogs. I was, I was yeah. Thrilled. Like I said, I mean, I've, I've walked through the EMU galleries plenty of times. I mean, there's never been anything quite like this. There. <laughs> so that's why I was like, wow, this is really something. I mean, hopefully it'll, it'll, there'll be, you know, maybe, you know, do other cool things like this. Um, so, uh, was there ever, uh, any other venue that you explored besides EMU or did you just figure, you know, Hey, let's start with EMU because, you know, you had such strong connections there. Well, really it started at EMU first and then we decided to uh, talk to uh, Brigham Young University, which houses the Marion Cooper papers. And, um, you know, pre pandemic, we started talking with them. And we had thought maybe it could start at EMU and then eventually move to BYU. Um, things got complicated um, with the pandemic and just calories, schedules and stuff in general. So that never happened. But I'm hoping that people are going to come see this exhibit and will want to say, hey, can, can we do someone's, someone something similar somewhere else? Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, I mean, I yeah. see in the Facebook comments people saying, you know, they, they're, they're planning on traveling out here. Um, to come check it out. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, and traveling in, in January is, you know, a, a thing to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ain't that the truth. Um, so, uh, you do have some... Ga- uh, there, so, in addition to just having this great display of um, artwork, um, and these are all original, this is original art, right? So- Almost every piece is original. I mean, we'll, we'll have some movie posters and lobby cards and stuff, but... Um, you know, almost every piece is an original art. We have um, probably, I don't know, I, I expect at least a score of um, original O'Briens that will be there. Um, uh, I think three Lara Nagas from Kong and Son of Kong. 
uh, Byron Crabb from Senecon. We got uh, three or four original Harry Housen pieces of artwork. Um, Jim Danforth artwork. We probably got a dozen storyboards and post and a, and a big poster art from uh, from the Primevals. So it, it's it covers decades. Yeah, many decades. Yeah. Um... And uh, and so so it sounds like you have stuff just from you know stop motion, not exclusively Kong, but stop motion, you know throughout the years. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, We're, like I see Tim Burton uh, listed as uh, you know someone you have art from. Yep. Yeah. No, we're kind of uh, we kind of start the story with the the influences on Kong. So we talk about the Lost World and the films that um, Cooper Cooper and Schutzhack were making, you know, before Kong. And, of course, there's not much original. We really don't have any original art in that section other than we've got some Charles Knight pieces, which obviously Charles Knight was the paleo artist. Yep. Was the basis for all the dinosaur work in, in Lost World and King Kong, right? That They always referenced his artwork. Um, and then we go on to Kong and Son of Kong and Mighty Joe, and then we'll have a section on um, Willis O'Brien's... Um, you know, I'll call them non-eight films, right? Or later projects, um, which some of which were made and many of which were not, right? And then a section on Harry House, and then then a section that um, even includes more recent stop motion up to kind of the transition to CGI, right? Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, being the organizer of this exhibit, um, so certain dates there will be some some events um, going on, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but... Um, you have some some guest speakers uh, uh, coming out um, that uh, you managed to to get on board. Um, so, um, I mean, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, those folks and how uh, how you you got them involved? Well, yeah. So on uh, February eighth, we're going to have a uh, I think what's called a reception. Um, it'll be uh, in the EMU ga- the same building as the EMU galleries, and uh, I don't know if the time has been set yet. They've been um, uh, trying to solidify it, but it's going to be in the evening. So in the probably start time in the six to seven o'clock PM range. And, um, we, uh, we were able to bring out, um, um, Connor Heaney, um, has agreed to come out from the Ray and Diana Harryhausen foundation. And, uh, and that's great. So uh, I'll be doing a talk on O'Brien. Um, Connor will be doing a talk on, um, uh, Ray Harryhausen and his relationship with Willis O'Brien. And then we also got Ben Harry, who's the curator of um, many things over at the Special Collections at Brigham Young University, which includes the Marion C. Cooper papers and the Max Steiner papers. So Ben is going to be talking about Marion Cooper, and uh, hopefully we'll all get a little bit of uh, time to talk about uh, what all these people meant to to film history and and Kong and, and their legacies. And uh, that, that, again, will be on February 8th. Uh, check the website for updates on the exact start time. Okay. Um, uh, are there any events um, that you're still trying to put together that haven't been announced yet? Well, so um, so there's another event on February 2nd, which is uh, confirmed. But the, again, the time is, is uh, still TBD, um, early evening, maybe a you know, 6 p.m.-ish or something, which would be a screening out there of uh, King Kong and Son of Kong. There'll be, there'll be digital screenings, but the intent is that we're going to uh, be able to watch one film and then walk the audience 
through with uh, some students and people talking about the display. Oh, that's cool. Exhibit between the uh, the screening of the two films. And I think it'll be kind of nice because after watching Kong, they can walk through the exhibit, see the influence on Kong, and actually look at some of the pre-production artwork from Son of Kong before they go watch that film. So I think that'll be exciting. Uh, there's going to be at least um, one other event um, planned um, likely February 7th, where Connor Heaney is going to talk about the Ray Harryhausen Foundation. Um, so, again, that's tentatively February 7th, but we, uh, we're working to get that one completely scheduled. Okay. And, uh, at least for now, that's, uh, that's what, what we have planned with the public. Uh, for students, there will be a, probably a few more sessions. Um, we're actually hoping to talk to the students um, about careers and things like curating and that, where we'll have... Um, you know, curators from Brigham Young and the Darren Harry Housen Foundation talking about these kinds of things and exhibits and what it's like to live in this kind of world of galleries and stuff. Okay. And and archiving um, history. Okay. All right, people. So you heard it uh, February 2nd. You got the two movies and the tour of the gallery. Um, the 7th, and then uh, possibly... Uh, uh, sounds like probably uh, the talk about the Harry Housen Foundation and... The eighth um, has the the panel discussion, so those are those are some prime days to go. Um, and uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, having uh, you know the program booklets printed. Um, I'm assuming that's just you know a first come first serve basis. Um, so uh, I I uh, I know that um, uh, if. So if someone is interested in getting one of those, I would assume you just go getting there as soon as, you know, it's convenient yeah. for you is probably the best idea. Um, each Yeah, each day, though, you know, I think I, I don't know exactly how the, they distribute it, but the, the, there'll be someone you can ask for in the gallery to get a copy of the catalog is, is the intent. And we have uh, I'm very close to announcing a deal. Um, we pretty much closed the deal where we're going to have. um uh, about 10% of the catalog copies that are um, with are, are going to be with a um, distributor who's going to be selling them online to people that cannot make the event. Okay. So if so, you can't make um, it or if you do make it and you're, you know, out of luck, uh, I guess people can keep order. an eye out for that. Yeah, we, we also wanted to discourage people from trying to collect too many copies and selling them. Right, yep. yep. By knowing... By knowing the fact that we've got to deal with somebody um, already to uh, to distribute a, a certain number of copies. Okay, well that's great because um, yeah, if you're out or if you know people can't make it, that's a great way to kind of um, I guess vicariously live through it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean I I I couldn't be more excited about it. Um, I mean, I'm I'm in Livonia, Michigan, which is a good, you know, probably 50 minutes to get there. So, I mean, I'm I'm probably gonna stop by at least, probably at least three times, and you know, I might, yeah, and uh, probably one of the one of these days, I'll bring my family out there. You know, I'm I might bring my little one to the movie screenings or something. I mean, it just sounds it just sounds great, and um, I I just. You know, uh, I'm very thankful that this just kind of landed in in my backyard because of all places. It's, I mean, it's not the most likely 
<laughs> venue for something like this. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully uh, maybe EMU will look at, you know, being more open to doing more things like this. And maybe, um, you know, this is an exhibit that, um, you know, if it does well here, you can take other places. I mean, there's, you know, it, it opens up a whole door of possibilities. Um, uh, I, I'm just hoping more people will look at this and say, hey, you know, we should be sharing these these things that are out there and helping people to see them. And now, for example, I mean, BYU is, has um, loaned us six pieces for this. Um, they've got a wealth of Willis O'Brien art in the Marion Cooper papers that nobody has ever seen, and most is, most of them have never been published. So yeah. we want to, uh, you know, give people an opportunity to see them. Well, that, that actually gives, makes me wonder, um, what just what was the process like in, you know, um, selecting these pieces and acquiring them? You know what went in. What what goes into something like that? Um, well, I mean, m- most of it came from private collections. You know, a, a lot of it from my own collection, and uh, and then we tried to augment with with pieces of the story we didn't have, right? And uh, and uh, BYU had been very helpful for me um, in the research that I've been doing. So they were. Uh, ben was actually pretty excited when we brought up the concept with him, and. Uh, and and he was very him and the and the university were very helpful in uh, in uh, cutting an agreement that that they could come uh, be at EMU and be seen. So we were really happy because they uh, there was no reason. I mean, there's no profit in them for for loaning original pieces of art, right? Taking the risk of shipping them back and forth across the country. But right, uh, I think you know we were very happy to see that they they felt that it should be the original art that's seen, not, you know, just a digital copy somewhere. And right. We all agreed on that. And, uh, you know, unfortunately I will say we probably might've had a few other pieces from more private collections that because of the complexity of working through the pandemic, we weren't able to get all the arrangements we did, but, um, you know, Hey, maybe the, you know, if some other university sees this and is interested, we'll, uh, you know, maybe we can, know get some of those pieces out on exhibit too sometime yeah no uh i mean that's great um well greg that's all i have for you um i mean where where can people um uh i guess uh follow this um you know uh check the schedule um and uh you know get updates so um the, the one thing they should look at is the emu galleries website which when the times are announced for the, uh, you know, the King Kong screenings and such, and the, uh, the actual time of the reception on February, those, those updates will be best to get off their website. Okay. There are still, you know, classes have not resumed for the winter quarter. You probably know from the academic calendar, these, these calendars don't get updated very frequently. No. So it's, <laughs> it's good. You know, you should check it before you go. And I especially want to make sure people check for the gallery hours because those might change, uh, especially if there's severe weather or something. And I, I think, you know, you can find out, like, I, I don't believe that the gallery is normally closed. The gallery is normally closed on Sunday. So people should check that site. Uh, I personally am trying to uh, post things directly to Stop Motion Monster Land um, for anything that... Uh, you know, is new and interesting yeah. and people the Facebook excited. group, right? Yeah. So if, if people want to, uh, you know, see something there, I mean, I'm going to try to keep the latest and I'm hoping to, uh, you know, put out a few teasers as we walk through the gallery the days before we open. So, oh. okay. Um, obviously the, yeah, the stop motion, um, monster land group, 
that's what it's called, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm in there. I just had a brain fart yeah. for a minute. Um, uh, so obviously that's a good place to look for updates. Um, is there anywhere besides that that um, uh, is a, a good place for people to, and you know, you mentioned the, the emugalleries.org website. Is there anywhere else um, that um, uh, people would be able to follow you and, um, you know, your, your uh, endeavors? Um. You know, actually, right now it's just easiest to find me on Stop Motion Monster Land. Right. Yeah. And and I mean that that's how I became aware of your work because um, I don't know it's, it was when you were uh, I don't know one of the Film Facts articles you did. <laughs> you were like, "Hey, my article's up here," and and that's how that's how I became familiar with it. So yeah, that's a great group. Anyway, um, you know, anyone listening to this uh, this podcast, any of our listeners, if you're not already in there. Um, it, it's a great resource just in general, uh, for any stop motion monster stuff. Um, yeah, and I'll say there's a couple other things that are, ho- are hopefully going to be announced in the not too distant future, like the, uh, actual publisher of the, uh, the book I'm working. Yes. So, so there'll be a few more sources of information as those things, um, um, become public. Great. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, uh, all right. Is is there anything besides um, you know uh, your publishing announcement and, and um, the uh, the exhibit that you uh, would like to plug at the moment? No, that, that that's about it. I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm just hoping people come and enjoy the exhibit. Yeah. Really, because uh, uh, I mean, I'm actually thrilled to. I, I'm very familiar with all these pieces now. I'm 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 going to be thrilled to see them all in one place in what I believe is a hope. Um, a story that comes out um, about the history, right? Mm-hmm. About history, and and people realize that a lot of this stuff actually is art, even though somebody might have just sketched it very quickly for, um, you know, to to figure out how to where to place the camera, or to convince somebody to send some money to them, you know, to uh, to let them do a test or or to you know approve a final shot, right? So. Uh, there's a lot of different ways the art is used, and I'm hoping people come out and see that and get a feel for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, like I'd mentioned it uh, a couple times, um, you can check out Greg's uh, articles on some of these O'Brien projects in issues of Film Facts magazine, Infinity magazine. So, I mean, Google those, check them out. Uh, hopefully those will wind up in a book that we'll have the sooner the better. Um but yeah, no, I'm I'm excited for the book. I'm thrilled that uh, the exhibit's coming up, and uh, um, yeah, no, that's 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 all I got, Greg. I mean, thank you so much for being here, being so generous with your time. Um, yeah, this has been this has been a good chat. So thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, thanks. It's always fun to talk about OB. So yeah, absolutely. All right, so that wraps us up for tonight. Um, thank you, listeners, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.